Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you again. Uh, we'll get to the baseball bat later. It's not because I'm pinch hitting for Bruno today. Um, uh, the message I want to bring uh, to you today is, is call, I've called it Ref- Reformation. We'll be looking at the original Protestant Reformation in the process of all this, but it's, it's not just that. It's going to be the whole concept of Reformation. And uh, so we'll be looking at um, the original Protestant Reformation, then we'll get into this thing called dispensationalism. Don't be overwhelmed by the word. We'll, we'll get into it, what that all means. And then we'll be also spending a little bit of time on some personal application of this whole concept of Reformation. All right, so let's start off with, I want to remind you of some of the benefits of the Protestant Reformation. There's a lot of things I think we take for granted in our, in our church and things that are going on in our, our Christendom today that just wasn't true uh, back in, in the day. Number one is that we have the Bible in English. In fact, uh, a number of you probably have multiple different versions of the Bible in English. Back before the Reformation, they had the Bible in Latin. You know how many people in the day actually spoke Latin as their native language? Like zero. Even the Italians at that point didn't even use Latin, right? And, and even what Bibles existed, they were all in the hands of the clergy, the priesthood. They were the only ones that could even read it or, or knew anything about it. So the fact that we have God's word in our own possession in a language that we can understand is a remarkable thing and a great, a great benefit of the Reformation. The other thing is church services in English. They used to do all the services in Latin, equally un, unintelligible. Can you imagine if, if Pastor Bruno was up here preaching to you in Italian, which he could do, right? And he'd be getting all excited and you'd have no idea what he's talking about, right? We have churches in English. We can participate and engage uh, nowadays. Uh, another thing is we re- recovered this concept of the priesthood of, of the believer that Peter talks about in, in his first uh, letter. Uh, the, the idea is that we don't need this vicar, of an intermediary. We are able to enter into the very throne room of God ourselves and he had asked us to do that because we have a mediator who's Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. And then also the, the Reformation started to disentangle the church from the corrosive influence of political civil government involvement. Uh, in the day, there was a lot of, of association between uh, the, the church and the, um, the royalty of the various countries, especially in the Western world, and, and that, was, uh, that was not actually helpful to the church, frankly. Uh, anyway, um, let's look at the history of, of the Reformation just really briefly. It's, it's really an, uh, an interesting thing to go ahead and study for yourself, and I encourage you to do that. Uh, but I, I, we don't have time to spend a, a lot of time on it. But just hit some high points. Uh, it's, typically, we look at Martin Luther as sort of the, the beginning of the whole Refor- Reformation thing. He actually was predated by a couple of key players, people like uh, uh, John Wycliffe that I mentioned on the previous slide. He, he was one of, he was, they call him the, the morning star of the Reformation, if you will, and he started this whole Bible translation thing going on, uh, trying to get it out of the Latin and into English and the, the language of the people. But we usually look at the date of uh, All Hallows' Eve, what we know as Halloween now, uh, back in 1517, as sort of the, the actual kickoff of the Protestant Reformation. And how that all went down is, is this guy, Martin Luther, was reading in uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul 
about soteriology. That's a fancy theology word just meaning uh, the doctrine of salvation. How does salvation work according to Paul? And he got increasingly concerned about you know, this doesn't, this doesn't seem to be exactly stacking up with the way that the church is, is, is working these days. In particular, he was worried about this practice of selling indulgences. Now, what is this indulgence thing, you're wondering? Yeah, okay, well, it's, it's, it's kind of obtuse, uh, certainly. But basically what it was, was the church was saying you could buy remission of sin. Put the money in the offering plate, and your sins can be forgiven because you put the money in. You're buying your salvation, effectively. And Luther was saying, this is not stacking up. I don't see it here. Paul doesn't talk anything about this kind of indulgence practice. And so he wrote all this up in a series of 95 theses. Uh, I actually read them all, and some of them, you're gonna, if you read them, you're like, what is he talking about? Well, the thing is, it was sort of an internal uh, theologian discussion. Uh, he, he hammered them, tacked them up onto the wall of the church in Wittenberg, but that was, that was actually not an unusual practice. If one of the theologians had an idea, he said, I, I'm, I'm thinking this, this is the way I'm thinking about it, I want to talk to my other theologians about it, he'd write it up, hammer it, uh, tack, tack it up on the door, the other theologians would come around, read it, and then they'd go off and discuss it somewhere sometime. So Luther didn't really go into all of this thinking, man, I'm going to blow up the church. Uh, he really, it was sort of an internal discussion saying, hey, I, I got some ideas and some things I want to talk through. But it, it kind of rapidly ramped up into a, a total theological revolution, really. And we're going to look at some of the, the theological elements of that that are core, that are key to our understanding of, of Christianity today. Uh, so let's look at the theology of the Reformation. Um, it can all be kind of captured up in what, what theologians call the five solas of the Reformation. And this is Latin. For some reason, the, the theologians still like to carry some of that Latin heritage along. But anyway, this is, this is the five solas that, that they talk about. Uh, the first one is sola scriptura, and that sort of forms the basis for everything else. What that basically says is scripture alone is the final authority for Christian faith and practice. That wasn't clear back then when, when the reformers start, started first talking about this. Uh, there was a, a combination of tradition and church teaching and all of these other things that were added in along with the scripture. And the reformers said, no, wait, all of this is out of whack. It's God's word that is the only final authority, right? And in God's word, we, we see these other things taught. If you read it carefully, you see... Uh, in particular, we tend to run the next three together, sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christus. We say we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, and all of this is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. All right, so let's look at each of these a little bit more carefully. When we think about the principles of sola scriptura, what we find is this. We find, first of all, that scripture is authoritative. And it's authoritative because it's the word of God. Uh, uh, Paul in 2 Timothy 3 said this about that. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay, we also uh, see the principle of sufficiency of scripture. Basically, it has everything you need for salvation and how to live uh, a moral life. Uh, following in 2 Timothy 3, it says the man, that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. And then finally we see the perspicuity, or simply clarity, the clarity of Scripture. It's clear enough that anybody can read it and know the way of salvation. Uh, John said, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay. Now, another thing uh, that is important, sola scriptura is an affirmation of what, what the theologians call the literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. And that's all a bunch of mumbo-jumbo to most of you, I imagine. But basically, it's this. A hermeneutic is simply a way of interpreting the Bible. How do you understand, how do you approach the Bible to try and understand what it's actually saying? And this literal grammatical historical approach says basically take it at face value. It says what it means. It means what it says. Don't be trying reading some big mystical something uh, into it. Rather, read out of it. Explore what it is actually telling you. Uh, follow the normal grammatical rules. Consider the historical context and you'll have your best chance of really understanding what it's saying. Furthermore, I would challenge you, based on this concept of sola scriptura, to be Berean. And what do I mean by that? I'll take you to Acts chapter 17, and if you read through there, what you'll find is that's where Paul, the Apostle Paul, shows up in the city of Berea. And he starts telling them about this Jesus of Nazareth and how he is the promised Messiah in the scriptures. And what was the Bereans' reaction to that? Well, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They say, hey, Paul, we're hearing you. It's all kind of exciting and pretty cool, but, but we're going to check you out. Man, we're going we're gonna to look at the scriptures and see if you're giving us the straight scoop. All right? And so I, my challenge to you, my invitation, uh, actually I'm imploring you, be Berean. In fact, be Berean about me. Don't take me at face value. If I say anything it should be stacking up against the scriptures. And if I say anything that you think doesn't stack up against the scriptures, please, come tell me. Because I don't want to be bumbling around up here or anywhere else having a distorted view of the scriptures. So come, let's talk about it. In fact, if Bruno says something that you're not sure about, go to him as well. Anybody. Anybody says anything uh, about how uh, this Christian life works, Check it out. Make sure you're, you're bouncing it against the scriptures. Okay. Um, so there are, there are a couple of really, really key passages to this whole concept of the theology of the Reformation. Uh, we're going to take the time only to read one of them. In the interest of time, I'm going to leave Ephesians chapter 2 as homework to the student out there. But if you want to turn with me, uh, we'll take a look at the Romans passage, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. If you want to use the black Bibles under the chair in front of you, you'll find that on page 941. So let's, let's turn there together. So it's kind of a long passage. Um, Usually I, I put my scripture right up on the slide, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't really fit. So uh, we'll just read it together. And it, it's, it's long, but, uh, you know, honestly, we could, uh, we could do a lot worse than just sitting here reading scripture the whole time, right? So let's, let's look at God's word together and, and follow along with me as I read it for you. So it begins in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then throw the law, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, so there's a lot there. We could spend weeks unpacking all of that. Uh, we're going to spend today. Um, but it forms the basis. If you, if you kind of absorb all of that, you'll see a lot of these principles that we're talking about now are touched on in that passage together. And, and honestly, I really love what the, the, the band did with the songs for today. Uh, it was... It was perfect. It was a God thing, clearly, to line up those particular songs with the words that they had with the content of the message today. I thought it was really great, and I really appreciate their work. Um, music is a remarkable thing anyway, right? I, sometimes I just think about these things. The fact that we even have music is just such a cool gift from God. Anyway, uh, moving on. Let's look at, first of all, sola gratia, this idea of grace alone. And uh, speaking of songs, John Newton had this song, he, this hymn he wrote many years ago, Amazing Grace. And uh, honestly, people, when, when I was a younger man, I thought, yeah, that's, that's an okay song. But, but in these latter years, I, I don't know, uh, with every passing year, it seems, I, I really love and appreciate that hymn uh, more and more. But more recently, there's this artist called, uh, named Torrin Wells, and, and some of you probably are aware of a song he has known. He talks about being fully known and loved by God, right? And, and just thinking about that, being fully known. You, you know, God, God knows you better than you know you. See, our problem is we have a deceptively wicked heart. And sometimes we can be distorted in our perspective of everything, including ourselves. God doesn't have that problem. He sees right through, and he knows. He knows it all. He knows everything about you. And he still loves us, right? But in that song, Mr. Wells talks about it as ridiculous grace. <laughs> I, I love that concept, ridiculous grace, because it is ridiculous. It's entirely absurd that the almighty, 
perfectly holy and righteous God cares one whit about a bunch of rebellious dustbecks like us. Okay, think about it. But see, God can't not be gracious toward us. It's just his nature. It's the way he is. He can't help but to overflow with love and mercy and patience toward us. So this grace, what are we talking about? Basically, the definition of grace, uh, definition of grace is unmerited favor. Basically getting what we, we don't deserve. And if you do your homework, in Ephesians chapter 2, you'll find these classic nuggets. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, one more thought about this whole grace idea. Interestingly, uh, Augustine, back uh, circa 400, uh, wrote extensively about this grace idea. And, and just so you know, as far as I understand it, uh, the Roman Catholics still uh, revere Augustine's writings as, as true. So what I'm going to suggest to you is you, if you have like family or friends that are in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, you might have a point of connection with them in the writings of Augustine. Okay, you might have to do some digging to find, to find that, but... But if they honor Augustine and he, and he agrees with us in this grace concept, there's a point of connection, right? Maybe a place to start a conversation. I don't know. I'm just, just saying it might be a little bit of a place to build a bridge to our, uh, your Roman Catholic family and friends. Anyway, so moving on, uh, the, the next idea is this uh, sola fide, faith alone. This is a really big one for Martin Luther. Maybe I have these bullets out of order, but in the, in the third one you see as, as he didn't get very far in the, readings of, in the writings of Paul until he stumbled upon this in, in the first chapter. The righteous shall live by faith. This is what really rocked his world. This is what really got him thinking about all, this thing, all these things. But understand, what is, what is faith? Faith is just uh, the conduit, the vehicle by which God's grace flows to us, by which it's appropriated and works in our lives. Uh, Charles Rarie said it this way. He said, faith means confidence, trust, holding something as true. And he went on to say, it is obvious that faith involves more than just knowledge of facts. Well, we also know that from God's word, because James said this in chapter 2, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, the, the demons have a complete knowledge of the facts about God and about Jesus Christ. It does them absolutely no good because they're living in rebellion. They're not placing their trust or confidence in, in Christ. All right? Okay, so we read in Romans chapter 3 into 4. If you continue reading through 4, it goes and explores more about this, this faith idea. And it culminates in the first couple of verses of chapter 5 this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Uh, again, so much of the whole content of this Reformation theology embodied in just a couple of verses. And then we'll leave this subject with this thought from Hebrews that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, which ties nicely into the next uh, one, Solus Christus, Christ alone. It is Christ who died for sin. 
And, and I was talking to uh, Pastor Jamba about this a little bit, and he, he kind of had, he kind of uh, gave me this, the, the, this idea that it's more than just dying for our individual sins that you and I commit, although it is that. But it, it's even more fundamental than that. He died for the whole business of sin, the whole sin concept. Um, he conquered all of sin in its entirety through his death on the cross. And Paul said, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a deal, right? He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. Where are you going to find that kind of a trade? Okay, but it's all Jesus here, right? Uh, John 14, 6, one of the all-time classic verses in the scriptures. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, and to be honest, I, I know just enough Greek to be dangerous, but, but I will tell you, I did go back and look it up in the original, and the definite articles are in there in every one of those. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. Okay. Uh, Peter said this in his speech in Acts 4, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then First uh, Timothy 2, this is a great, a great uh, passage there too. There is one mediator between God and man. That's Jesus Christ. The one mediator. We have one. And in case all of that isn't plain enough to you yet, John, the apostle in his first letter, puts it, I think, as plainly as can be stated. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You know, how can you miss that? That's the bottom line. Okay. Um, pressing on. I'm not going to necessarily read through this Nicene Creed. Uh, a little background on that. Uh, the Emperor Constantine in 325 AD uh, convened this council of theologians saying, hey, put together a statement that says, what do we actually believe? And what, what are the, the fundamental concepts in our Christian faith? And, but I want to point, focus primarily on the second uh, paragraph there that really hones in on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and a lot of this uh, was written specifically to counter the Arian heresy of the time that was denying the, the, the deity of Christ. So in this we see a, an affirmation of Jesus as the Son of God, as very God, true God, uh, and also coming to earth as a man and what he did to save us from ourselves essentially now here's another uh, point possible in for you with your catholic friends because again as far as i know as far as i understand they hold to the nicene creed they still they still claim to believe this and if you read that second paragraph very carefully i've studied it i think we can wholeheartedly sign up to that same message about who jesus is so if you can maybe build a bridge over the content of the second paragraph of the Nicene Creed about who this Jesus is, it may start softening their hearts to, to the presence of Jesus in their lives personally. A, a, a possibility there, I just, I just offer it out to you that way. Now I will say, at this point, uh, we've laid enough groundwork for you to understand the way of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, okay? 
And if you're sitting out there and you've never put your faith in this same Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, uh, then I would suggest to you it's, it's time. Today's the day. Because your eternal destiny hangs in the balance over that. All right, I'm not going to call you forward or ask for raising hands or anything, but if you're in your chair and uh, you haven't done that yet, I would encourage you to do so. Just in the quietness of your heart, before God, just confess, hey, I know I'm a sinner. I know I actually need a Savior. By the way, if you're sitting out there and you don't think you need a Savior, you're just fooling yourself. Um, and then just place, tell, tell God you're trusting in his provision through Christ. Um, that's what we call repenting, turning from your sin and selfishness and turning to Jesus Christ, to, to God through Christ. That is your way of being reconciled to him. Um, if, you've done, if you do that today, in the quietness of your heart, just between you and God today, I would encourage you to not leave here without telling somebody Talk, you know, talk to somebody about it so we can help you along the way. We'd like to welcome you into our fellowship and uh, the company, the body of Christ, and help build you up in, in that new part of your life, that new phase of life. Um, or certainly, if you're still not quite clear about what I'm talking about here, uh, certainly talk to me, one of the pastors, one of the elders, the person sitting next to you. Uh, okay, just ask, and, and we'll make sure we get it clarified for you. Okay. Um, moving on, uh, the final of the five uh, solas, soli, soli Deo Gloria. Um, so when, when Luther kicked off this whole Reformation business, uh, uh, he was really kind of focused on uh, sola scriptura, the importance of scripture and how that wasn't, uh, how the church's practice didn't seem to be consistent with that. And sola fide was a big deal for him, right? That's what I, I told you. He got the whole ball rolling when he was seeing the importance of faith in the whole process. Uh, but a little later on, this guy Calvin comes along, and he really picked up on this last uh, of the solas, the, the, uh, the, the glory of God. He just saw this doc, what we call a doxological principle, meaning that ultimately all things are to God's glory. Everything. Everything is to glorify God, okay? Um, uh, back uh, in January, two Januaries ago, uh, I spent a lot of time up here talking to you about uh, God's world, the created order, and how that relates uh, to God. I gave you a whole lot, lot of stuff. I'll just give you a little sample today. Uh, this, is, this picture here is uh, a picture of Andromeda. That's our next nearest neighbor galaxy. And uh, courtesy of the Hubble Telescope, um, so as, as far as we can tell, in the known universe, there's a couple hundred billion of these galaxies floating around out there, you know, give, or, give or take a hundred billion or so. And then in each of those, there's a couple hundred billion stars, you know, give or take a billion or so. And each of these stars, remember, you know what a star is, right? It's a giant nuclear fireball. It makes, makes our nuclear devices look, look like pop guns in comparison. These are awesomely massive nuclear devices. And there's just countless amounts of them. And all of this, God holds in the palm of his hand. You, you should be properly, totally awed by that thought right now. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? 
Salvation declares God's glory. The fact that he made a way where there was no way. Um, the singers up here are talking about without, without, without Christ, there's no hope. Totally hopeless. That God made a way where there was no way is a glorious thing. And the angels couldn't help themselves. When the, when the Savior was born, recorded in Luke chapter 2, the angelic host came out giving glory to God. Tozier said it this way, we are a holy people called out of darkness to show forth the glory of Almighty God. Absolutely. We are to declare God with everything we got. All we are, everything we are. 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Um, Piper, in his inimitable way, says this, the whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. And in case you wonder whether you can make a difference in any of this, consider the words of Alistair Begg, another preacher. He said, do not underestimate the impact of a solitary life lived to God's glory. So even if nobody else is doing it, you do it, and you can have a tremendous impact. Okay? All right, so uh, let, me, let me jump into this concept of dispensationalism now real quick. And what it really is is kind of a follow-on, a continuation of the Reformation concepts. And, and what we see that if you, if, you, if you actually do a fully consistent application of this literal grammatical historical hermeneutic that we talk about, uh, where we where we take the, the Bible at its face value and read it and understand it that way, you see some other things that are emerging. All right, We're going to talk about some of that. But just to give you a, a definition of dispensationalism, um, I, I tried to boil down um, the, the kind of theological technical definitions of that into something that's a little bit more plain language. But basically the idea is this, is that God has a redemptive plan, and that plan is unfolding through the ages. And there, it's a consistent plan, but there are, are definite de defined ages throughout time where the way he relates to people uh, kind of changes a little bit. So the way he was relating to Adam and Eve in the beginning is one thing. And then there was the, the whole nation of Israel in the period of the law. That's a, a kind of a different thing. And then um, in the current day, we have the church age that we're all part of. And that's a, that's a different thing yet. Now, it all centers on uh, Christ. The Old Testament saints looking forward to a promised Messiah, us now looking back on the, on the Savior that has already come. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, but basically, uh, there are these different phases in, as God's plan is unfolding. Uh, I mentioned a couple of key people in, in all of this discussion. John Nelson Darby, who started the Plymouth Brethren Movement in Great Britain in the 1800s, he's generally considered sort of like the, 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 the one who began this whole idea of dispensational theology, really. But I mentioned also Alexander Mack because he's the one who started the Schwarzenau Brethren Movement in what is currently uh, Germany. And that is actually the original ancestor of our own fellowship, 
what, what has been, until a couple of years ago, known as the, the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches, uh, now currently called the Karis Fellowship. Uh, it all started with Alexander Mack, and uh, it was 100 years or so before Darby, and a lot of the principles are very much the same uh, in his teaching as well as Darby's. Okay. So let's take a look at some of this. Uh, there's a few benefits that you may not realize that grow out of a dispensational view of things. Uh, number one is that we have independent local churches, just like ours. We, we are not beholden to any denominational hierarchy, right? We're autonomous in that, in that sense. All right? Now, we have a fellowship, uh, and we do things at a regional, national, international level together with other churches in the fellowship, and that can be very beneficial. But as far as our, our polity and governance, uh, we're, we're our own thing. Uh, also, this idea of literacy. Remember, as we recapture this concept of the priesthood of the believer, there's a great responsibility there for each of us. Each of us is responsible for properly handling the Word of God. Well, if we're going to properly handle the Word of God, we kind of need to be able to read it, right? So there was a, a great emphasis uh, among the brethren movements toward getting the common people to be highly literate so they could read and understand and handle properly the Word of God. Also, uh, there, was, uh, there, there had been, prior to the Reformation, a pretty sharp uh, uh, distinction, again, between the clergy and the laity. The Reformation began eroding some of that. Dispensationalism carries that a little bit further. Uh, not that there's not a usefulness to having vocational pastors, we derive great benefit, trust me, with having Bruno around and Dennis around. They do a lot of work around here. We pay them so they can be completely focused on the ministry. But, make no mistake, all of us are part of the ministry, right? It, 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 may, it, may, be, it may be something like this where occasionally you get up in front of the rest of the group and you bring God's word to them. Uh, it may be as simple as working in the nursery, Shameless plug for my wife in the nursery. That's where I would be today if I weren't doing this. I, I bailed on her so I could come do this with you today. Um, and everywhere in between, right? If you, if you can love on kids, you can work in the nursery. And if uh, some of you can teach, uh, there's lots of ways you engage. The key is that it's a great relief to our vocational pastors that they're not doing everything. They can't. They're a couple of guys. They're human beings. They can't be everywhere doing everything all the time. We, if this body's going to be healthy, we all have to be engaged in the work of the ministry. Um, and that gives, actually, that gives a, a, a new honor to each of us as well, right? That we can have a vital role, that we have a piece of the action in the ministry uh, that, God's, that God's doing around here. Okay. Um, so what are some of the theological elements that, that come when you consistently apply that literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic? Um, first of all, uh, uh, and Matt Duransky uh, noted I used the wrong word imminent here. Uh, technically, that ought to have an I where the A is. Uh, the, the idea is this, um, that the return of Christ can happen at any moment. Uh, that's what I meant to say there. There's nothing that stands in the way of him returning. Um, and then when he does, he's going to establish a, thousand, a literal thousand-year reign on this planet Earth. 
you get that out of the prophecies. If you read, if you read the, uh, the prophets, uh, that's the way it's going to go. We have a theological term for it. It's called premillennialism. Okay. And interestingly, a lot of the early church fathers, like in the first couple of centuries after, after Christ, had a premillennial, basically premillennial view. And so we've recaptured that here in, in, these, latter, in these latter years. Also, you'll, you'll find a distinction between national Israel and the church. See, there, there's a, an alternate hermeneutic is the allegorical hermeneutic where you read into the scripture uh, some deeper mystical meaning. And along with that has come uh, this habit of replacement theology, of viewing the church as God's chosen people having kicked Israel to the curb. There's no, there's no place for Israel anymore. What disp dispensational theology would say, yes, in a certain sense, the church is God's chosen people. He's called us out uh, from the world to be the body of Christ. And in a very real way, we are chosen like that. But uh, there's also still a remaining role for national Israel as the prophecies unfold in the end times. That's what dispensational theology would tell you. If you read the Bible literally and take it at face value, that's what you will see. So God is working through the church, but he hasn't completely abandoned the role of, of national Israel in his, in his plan. And on top of all of this, you have a furtherance of Calvin's emphasis on the glory of God. Uh, what, what dispensationalism notices, when you look through the scripture, you can hardly turn almost anywhere in scripture without seeing some reference to the glory of God and glorifying God. All summed up in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Um, furthermore, in dispensational theology with respect to salvation, what, what dispensationalists will tell you is that salvation is always by grace alone and always through faith alone and is always based in the person and work of Christ in all dispensations. So that in, in those uh, ages before Christ, again, they're looking forward to a, a yet-to-come uh, Savior in the present age, we're looking back on the one who had already come. But in either case, it's uh, grace that has provided salvation. It's through faith that it, it is uh, uh, allocated to us. And it's all based in what Christ did to conquer the sin problem. Okay, And so even going back all the way to Genesis 3, you see the early inklings or the, the initial shadows of the full-blown gospel right there. I will put enmity between you, this is God talking now, i talking to the serpent, uh, uh, Satan, the, the image of Satan there, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Um, certainly they couldn't have fully understood uh, the entirety of the gospel and how it was all going to go down and the, and the crucifixion and all that, just given that. But we see God's uh, plan of salvation unfolding then through the different dispensations. Uh, how did, how did, was Abraham righteous? Because he believed the Lord, all right? It's the same function through faith, right? And even Paul talks in Romans 3, as we read earlier, uh, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins, 
he passed over those previously committed, even though the Savior hadn't actually arrived yet. But it was all part of the plan. Ryrie will talk about salvation this way in times of trying to summarize the dispensational view of all of that. He would say that the basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. He would also say the requirement for salvation in every age is faith. The object of faith in every age is God. The only thing that changes is the content of the faith. Now, what do we mean by that? Just that the, the knowledge, the information that the people had to place their faith in has changed. We know more about the fullness of God's gospel plan than actually Adam and Eve did in the beginning. They had that initial illusion to what the salvation plan would be. But we've seen, we've had the record of it played out. All right? So, so the content is a little bit different as God's uh, progressive revelation becomes available. <clears throat> okay, so now I want to get to the application with all of this. What do we do with all of this? And I think the main point I want to stress, stress with you to throw a little more Latin on you uh, for the fun of it is this idea of semper reformanda, to be always reforming. Right, what we saw was the, the Protestant Reformation with, with Luther, and then subsequently uh, the dispensationalists carried it even a little further. And, but on a personal basis, we need to be constantly thinking in terms of reforming ourselves. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 is a great verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Uh, that, the, the word transformed here, uh, in the Greek, it's, it's the word from which we get metamorphosis. Right? So you're familiar with like the caterpillar turning into the butterfly, complete change. That's that word here. But in this verse, it's in the present tense passive imperative, and I'm glad you're just so glad that you, you, you know that now, right? Uh, but what does that mean? It means essentially that we're being commanded to adopt a long-term lifestyle of transformation. This transformation, people, is not a, a one-and-done type of thing. This is an ongoing, continuous process of transformation. We are continually to be transformed, evermore being conformed to the likeness of Christ. A couple of other ideas picked up from other sections of Scripture, Lamentations, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul said in his letter to the Philippians. Uh, all of this kind of promotes the idea of walking circumspectly, uh, kind of constantly evaluating where we are, where is our standing with God. And the reason we have to do that is because we have a problem in that we tend to fall away. The, the, the hymn writer said this, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. See, we're affected by everything. We're affected by the culture more than we imagine. Uh, one of these days, I think we're going to try and talk some more about this concept of the prosperity gospel and the danger of that. And it's really prominent in America, to tell you the truth. But I think we're closer to that than we may realize. It's very dangerous thinking, but in our practical day-to-day -day thought, uh, our practices maybe closer to the prosperity gospel than we'd like to admit. Uh, 
Paul may let, put this warning out. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you got this Christian thing wired, look out. You are on the precipice, my friend. All right? You're, you're, you're just cruising for a fall. Even Paul didn't think he had it wired. He said, I, I have not attained to this yet, but I leave what's behind, press forward to the high calling, the prize of the high calling that I have in Christ. So here's the idea. It, it, the, the problem is, uh, so, so he, this is my prop for the day. This is, this is uh, what, what physicists will call a baseball bat. No. Um, <laughs> This is what we all highly technical. This is what we all call a baseball bat. But no, this is what physicists would call a stable equilibrium, it, meaning that this bat is perfectly happy to hang here like this indefinitely. It'll hang here for as long as I have the strength to hold it here. Okay, just like this. This, on the other hand, is what we would call an unstable equilibrium, uh, because any slight departure from the, the vertical state, and it'll tend to accelerate away from that. And so this is much more what our walk in alignment with Scripture, our walk of godliness, our walk with God is like. If at any point we try and take a vacation day, or just relax a little bit, put it on cruise control, you know, and just let it go, we fall away. Right? We, fall, we tend to fall away. We tend to get uh, we tend to drift. We tend to get, pick up distorted views and bad habits. So there's no break from the pursuit of, of godliness, my brothers and sisters. Now, the good, the good news is we have, we have help. What, it, what has Bruno been preaching to us the last several weeks? We're better together, right? The church is a wonderful place to help us with our semper reformanda. All right? We can help each other. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We're to help each other not be dull, to be sharp in our understanding and practice of the word. All right? uh, we're to be stirring one another up to love and good works, uh, not neglecting meeting together, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And, and finally, uh, to kind of tie all this up, this is, the, this is the whole point of the discipleship culture overhaul that we're trying to, to do around here. Matt Duransky is, is leading us with all of that and, and creating these uh, the triads and the quads so that we can do life on life here with each other and help each other in this process. So, so my brothers and sisters, uh, I encourage you, Semper Reformanda, and uh, with that, let me close in prayer with the, uh, from the book that I actually w was a great resource in, in this study, Forged from Reformation. Um, it's a really good book. Uh, it's not light reading. I'll warn you, you're not going to knock it out in, a, in an afternoon at the beach. Um, but uh, it's really good stuff. And they wrap up the whole book, all 567 pages of it, with a prayer. And so I'm going to just read you that prayer out of here, and if, if the, uh, the, the band wants to come up and get ready for the final song, they can do that as, as I read this prayer. So pray with me together as I read this. Uh, we bow our knees before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power 
through your spirit in our inner man, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, so that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to you, who are able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.